Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord." And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. And we know God will always bless the, the reading of His own inspired Word. Now, you will remember from our studies so far, we uh, have seen that the church in Corinth was a church that was beset with problems, problems that in retrospect, we bless God for, because without those problems, we wouldn't have the epistles of 1 and 2 Corinthians, which provide us a rich source of theological and practical instruction on issues as diverse as the worship of the church, church discipline, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and the whole issue of the Lord's Supper. So, praise God for the problems that this church experienced, because Without them, we wouldn't have had this rich reservoir of teaching. You remember from our last study that Paul, first of all, had dealt with the issue of division in the church. It seems that the church had divided around the personality of their teachers, some saying they were of Paul, some saying they were of Apollos, some saying they were of Cephas or Peter, and some rather arrogantly saying, we are of Christ. In the second half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul takes another problem that uh, isn't totally unrelated to the first, and that's what I want us to consider this morning. And I want you to notice three things, the problem he exposes, the arguments that he uses, and the test that he applied. So first of all, then, the problem he exposes. 
You know, remember by way of introduction, we said that one of the great problems in the Corinthian church was that they had been unduly influenced by the environment in which they were located. They had unconsciously or perhaps subconsciously imbibed the attitudes and ideas, the standards of those around them, and the church reflected the community in which it was placed. And Paul's great goal in writing to the Corinthians was, as John MacArthur says, was to de-Corinthianize the Corinthians, not to take them out of Corinth, but that Corinth would be taken out of them. One of the most obvious ways in which they were influenced was in the whole realm of morality. In a city that was notorious and synonymous with immorality, the church began to tolerate immorality within its membership. This, as Paul was later to point out, was beginning to bring the gospel into disrepute. However, in the section that we're looking at this morning, Paul highlights another way, a more subtle and perhaps a more dangerous way in which the church was being influenced by its environment. It was not only being influenced morally, but intellectually. Look at what Paul says in verse 17, the verse that we didn't read, but we looked at in our last study. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The NIV says, not with wise and persuasive words. That word wise or wisdom is the Greek word sophia, uh, which is the word from which we get our word philosophical. So, philio is the Greek word for love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom, and so put them together and you have philosophical, a love of wisdom. Paul uses this word, wise or wisdom, over 20 times in this section. It seems to have been a kind of watchword or buzzword in the city of Corinth. Like most Greeks, Corinthians love philosophy. Scholars estimate that there were at least 50 philosophical schools in the city of Corinth alone, and in homes, schools, and in the marketplace, the citizens of Corinth would have, take great delight in debating with people from other groups. In days before television or a popular media or social media. The philosophical teachers provided a, a great source of entertainment for the inhabitants of a city like Corinth, and in fact were the celebrities of the ancient world, and people would follow them the way people would follow pop or sporting celebrities today. So, Corinth was a city of debate and division, but unfortunately, that spirit had come into the church. The members had trusted in Christ, but they couldn't get over this love of human wisdom. They wanted to add to their salvation the latest philosophical speculations in order to make their faith a little bit more intellectually satisfying to themselves and a little more intellectually appealing to their non-Christian friends. So they dressed up the faith with the ideas of the philosophers, but in doing so, they were actually hiding the truth of the gospel. And that's Paul's point. That's the problem that he's exposing. Look at verses 20 and, and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you didn't come to faith through human wisdom, through worldly philosophy. You didn't come to know God through that. You came through an altogether different way. Indeed, quoting the prophet Isaiah, we're told that God opposes this kind of philosophical speculation. Look at verse 19, where he quotes Isaiah 29, verses 13 to 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What are you doing, says Paul? You're pursuing this philosophical, intellectual approach, but you didn't come to know God in that way, and indeed God Himself according to the prophet Isaiah, is opposed to that. That's the problem then that Paul exposes. They were abandoning their faith and adding to it the godless speculations of the philosophers of their day. And we might think that's totally irrelevant to us in the 21st century. We don't have this kind of philosophical uh, domination in our day, but let me just say that the errors of Roman Catholicism can be traced to a mixture of philosophy and theology. That's where those errors find their origin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of the Protestant church in the 1950s, says the whole drift towards modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced back to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. And in our day, this obsession with seeker-sensitive services, with socially progressive ideas, and even entertainment evangelism, all comes and can be traced back to this mixture of philosophy with Christianity. It began in the Garden of Eden. You remember we're told in Genesis 3 and verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. Paul says, don't you know, he says, don't you know that God is opposed to that? and has promised to destroy it. That's the problem he exposes. The second, the arguments he uses. Paul in this section deals a devastating blow to the Corinthians' flirtation with this philosophical speculation, and he uses three great arguments about the gospel itself to show how contrary that this kind of thinking is to biblical Christianity. In verses 18 to 25, he speaks of the message of the gospel. In verse 26 to 31, he speaks of the grace of the gospel. And in chapter 2, 1 to 5, he speaks of the ministry of the gospel. And with these three great hammer blows, he delivers devastation to that kind of notion that Christianity and philosophy make a more attractive package. Let's first of all consider the message of the gospel. Look at what he says there in verse 18. For 
the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, see what he's saying. The message of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, is essentially about the cross, that in its most primitive form and at its most basic level, it is concerned with the cross, that if you remove the cross from the message of the gospel, there is no message of the gospel, that it's only through the great cross work of Jesus that we have any hope of finding acceptance before God. There is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a way that is open that we may go in. And it's at Calvary's cross where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The way back to God is by the cross, that there is no other way but by the substitutionary bloodshedding of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he who knew no sin, as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Some years ago, the Chinese army marched through Peking, formerly Peking, now Beijing, uh, chanting uh, a phrase that they had corrupted from the Bible, without the shedding of blood, there can be no revolution. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. It is only by the cross and through the cross that we can enter into fellowship with God. Charles Spurgeon says, leave out the cross, and you have killed the religion of Jesus. Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of Christian truth. That is the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, says Paul, of whom I am the worst. Now, do you see what he says there in verse 18? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who are lost in their sin with no thought or interest in the Scriptures. Christ crucified is utter foolishness. So why dress it up? Why try to make it more intellectually appealing or a little bit more enticing when at its very heart the cross to the unbeliever is foolishness? Look at what he says there in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews sought miraculous signs to authenticate the claims of Jesus. The, the Greeks or the Gentiles wanted to be persuaded by intellectual and philosophical argument. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Uh, that word stumbling block is the Greek word for scandal. To the Jews, it was a scandal, a scandal that anyone would dare teach that Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. How could the long-awaited, anticipated Messiah end up his life by hanging on a Roman gibbet? When the Bible said, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. To the Greeks, on the other hand, or the Gentiles who were fascinated with human wisdom, 
to them that God should come into the world, surrender His life to unscrupulous men, and die as a common criminal defied all human wisdom and logic. It was foolishness to them. And Paul says, as long as Jews look for miraculous signs and Greeks search for wisdom, they will always, always stumble at the cross. The message of the cross is folly, foolishness. That's the Greek word moriah, from which we get our English word moron. It's for morons. It's for fools. That common understanding, that was the common understanding of both Jews and Greeks. In uh, 177 AD, the anti-Christian apologist Cilicius wrote, let no cultured person draw near, none wise and sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, let him become a Christian. And he tells us why he despises Christian theology so much. He says, God is good, beautiful, and happy. If He descends to be a man, it involves a change for Him and a change from good to bad, beautiful to ugly, happiness to unhappiness, from what is best to what is worst. God, he says, would never accept such a change. To Him, not only the cross, but the whole idea of the incarnation that Christ would come into our world was utter foolishness because it ran contrary to human wisdom and logic. Now, do you see Paul's point? You're trying to dress up the gospel with philosophical niceties, with human wisdom to make it more palatable and more appealing of those of a philosophical bent. But you've got to understand that at its heart, the message of the cross is foolishness, folly, to those who are perishing. Now, of course, it may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's not foolishness to God. He says in verse uh, 25, for the uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It may be foolishness to man, but not to God. It is God's revealed way. Do you see what he's saying? The message itself runs contrary to human wisdom and logic. So, why pander to that? Why use that? Why rely on those human techniques? What you need is the power of God unleashed in the human heart to make the cross attractive. Look at what he says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, uh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God that when the power of God is unleashed in the human heart to the Jews who are looking for miraculous signs, it becomes the power of God. The cross itself becomes the power of God, and it becomes the wisdom of God to those who are looking for intellectual satisfaction. Now, there is such a lesson for us there today. If you want to remove the offense of the Christian gospel, just take away the cross. That's all you have to do. It's the cross that people object to because the cross speaks to us of the sinfulness of man. 
The cross speaks to us of a God who is just, who must account for sin and must punish sin, and it, it, it speaks of God's exclusive remedy and way into reconciled sinners to Himself. To remove the cross, you remove the gospel. We ought not to change the message or even adapt the message or the method, but we need to call out to God for power. That's what he's saying. seems to me all these attempts to dress up the gospel, to make it more acceptable with Christian clowns, with Christian rock stars, with Christian comedians, with uh, manipulative mind techniques to persuade people into believing runs contrary to what Paul is saying here. We rely on the power of God unleashed at the cross. So, Paul warns us against the danger of philosophy by, first of all, speaking of the message of the gospel. Secondly, he reminds us of the grace of the gospel. Look at verse 26 through to 28. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. His second great argument is grace. Now, grace is the undeserved kindness, the undeserved mercy of God. And grace begins not with us coming to faith, but it actually stretches back into the counsels of eternity when God chooses a people for Himself. And that choice, as demonstrated in the life of the Corinthians, was not only unconditional but unconventional. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. That expression, the things that are not, is the most, was the most contentable expression in the Greek language that one individual could use of another. Uh, he's a thing that's not. He's, he's a thing. He's a, he's a waste of space, we would say. He doesn't even deserve to be there. And the reason for that deliberate action on the part of God is given in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one can stand before God and say, well, God chose me because of the persuasiveness of the preacher, or God chose me because I was brought up in a Christian family, or God chose me because of my pedigree or my intelligence my holiness, or my achievements, or my learning. No, it's grace, grace, grace. We are what we are by the grace of God. Look at verse 30. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It is because of Him Listen to that. It is because of Him. It's nothing to do with you. It's because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. The only reason you are in Christ is because of the operation of the Spirit in your heart bringing and giving you faith. 
Jesus has become the wisdom of God to us in terms of righteousness, holiness, and redemption. His wisdom is revealed in that He gives us a righteousness, He sets us apart for Himself, and He has redeemed us by His precious blood. That's true wisdom, and it's given in grace. Let me ask you a question. If you were selecting a movement to turn this world upside down and to establish the church, would you have chosen the twelve disciples? I don't think so. If, if you were looking for foundation members to form a church in that outpost of hell in Corinth, who would you have chosen? Intelligent people, influential people, people of good birth, the movers and shakers of Corinthian society, but God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the despised, because He chooses in an, in an unconventional way. Let me ask you another question. If you had to choose the elect, if you had to choose a number of people from the foundation of the world to be Christians, would you have chosen you? Would you have chosen you? If you answer yes to that question, you haven't even begun to understand the grace of God. We are Christians simply and solely because of His grace. That's why He says in verse 31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Outside of Him, we have absolutely nothing to boast about. You see what He's saying? This trying to dress up the gospel runs contrary to the grace of God. It's not needed. Our God often, although not always, chooses the very weak things of the world to confound the wise. You know, Countess, the Countess of Huntington, that was so useful in the ministry of George Whitfield and uh, John and Charles Wesley. Uh, she was from the nobility and introducing other nobles uh, to, to, to the gospel. She said of this verse, thank God, it says, not many and not any were of noble birth. The arguments he uses, the message of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, and then the ministry of the gospel. Look at chapter 2 and verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In this section, Paul reminds them of his ministry among them, the ministry under which most of them had been converted. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I came to you, brothers, I did not, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, with eloquence, says the NIV, and superior wisdom. Rather, he says in verse 3, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. Here's the Apostle Paul, and he trembled because of his weakness when he thought about the task before him in Corinth. And he says, I didn't try to impress you with lofty speech or wisdom. I rested on God's power. I came, verse 2, and I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This was His message. His proclamation was tethered to the cross. 
That's where it began and that's where it ended, the cross of Jesus, Christ crucified. I presumably Paul endowed with the massive intellect that we know he had could have taken on these philosophers to devastating effect and persuaded them of the error of their ways. After all, he had studied at Tarsus, one of the most influential cities in the ancient world, and he was a student, a personal student of Gamaliel, one of the most respected rabbis in the world. But that wasn't his tactics. He boldly, powerfully, uh, and undoubtedly persuasively presented Christ and Him crucified. And it was that message that changed and converted these Corinthians. His confidence was in the power of God. Look at what he says there in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See what he's saying? I deliberately didn't dabble with philosophical logic and speculation when I was preaching to you, because I didn't want you to be persuaded by any philosophical argument. I wanted you to be converted by the power of God. I preach Christ crucified so that your faith might rest on God's power and not human wisdom. I wanted God to convert you, not me. Years ago at the pastor's conference, and it was held in Newcastle, David Kingdom, who was then principal of the college, said to uh, one of the pastors, higher things, in, and he named the town that he was in. He says, oh, David, they're so difficult. I can't even get a false profession. Well, it's easy to get a false profession. Well, that's relatively easy. John MacArthur tells a story of a minister who was visiting his church and noticed one of his ex-members there. And he asked MacArthur if that man was in membership. And MacArthur says, yes, do you know him? And the man replied to MacArthur, yes, he's one of my converts. He's one of my converts. Not one of God's converts. Now, that is what Paul is saying here. If you dress up the gospel and try to impress people with human logic, you may get converts, but not true converts, where their faith rests on God's power. And that's always the danger. If you seek to dress up the gospel with anything, the danger is that people are attracted to the dressing rather than to the gospel itself. And I don't believe the gospel needs any enhancing. It's attractive and powerful enough. Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. It's powerful in and of itself. That old message of Christ crucified is powerful enough to convert the very worst of sinners. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We don't veil it. We don't hide it. We don't water it down. We don't dress it up. We don't spice it up. We preach Christ crucified. And that's what was effective uh, among the Corinthians. So, here then are Paul's great arguments against this kind of philosophical 
uh, method of presenting the gospel, the message of the gospel itself. He says you need to understand it's folly to those who are perishing. The grace of the gospel, when the, the, the gospel came to you, it broke into the lives of ordinary, unsophisticated people. And the ministry of the gospel, when Paul came, he didn't dress it up with uh, uh, fancy philosophical ideas. He presented the truth plainly, and the truth itself did the work. The problem he exposes, the arguments he uses, and the tests that he applies. In this section, there is a very important, sobering, and somber lesson for us all, and it concerns our attitude to the cross and to Christ crucified. Because Paul says in a number of places that our attitude to the cross reveals our spiritual condition. Look at what he says there in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, the NIV and the ESV are right in translating it there as a continuous tense. The authorized version is wrong. The authorized version says, but unto us which are saved. But it's a, it's a continuous tense. It's to us who are being saved. It's a continuous action. And in Scripture, there are three tenses to salvation. We have been saved when we came to faith in Jesus. Presently, we are being saved, present tense. And then ultimately, we will be saved uh, when uh, we either go to heaven or the Lord comes again. And you might say to me, well, how do I know then if I will ultimately be saved? And the, the answer is, well, are you being saved at the moment? And you might look back on, on your experience in the past, and you might say, how do I know I, I was really saved the way back then? Well, the answer is, are you being saved right now? That salvation is a present, abiding, ongoing experience, and that's the test. You say, how do I know if I'm presently being saved? Well, Paul tells us, your present spiritual condition of either perishing or being saved is revealed in your attitude to the cross, to those who are perishing. It's folly. It's foolishness. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the answer, the remedy, the solution to the problem of my guilt and my sin. So, I'm asking you right now, not have you been saved, not will you be saved, but I'm asking you, are you being saved? What's your attitude to the cross? Is it appealing to you? Is it magnetic to you? Is it lovely for you? Is there a strong attraction to that old, old story of Jesus and His love? Can you say, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, with all my heart, with all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. The cross in this, at the same time, attracts you and disgusts you. 
It disgusts you when you think that the sinless Son of God came into our world and was mocked, and a crown of thorns was pressed upon His head, and that they drove nails through His hands to secure Him to that crossbeam, which they hauled up that perpendicular pole to secure in place, putting tremendous pressure on His lungs, and that when they drove those nails into His feet, those wounds, painful though they were, brought relief to His condition because He was able to lift Himself up and release the pressure on His lungs, allowing Him to breathe, and setting all those physical sufferings aside that, that God took the eternity of the wrath of God for all the people of God and, and condensed it, and in condensing it, intensified it, and laid it on His Son so that at the height of His agony, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're disgusted by it. How could anyone treat the sinless Son of God in that way, but at the same time you're drawn to it? It's beautiful. It's attractive because on His sinless soul, my sin was led. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And there's this powerful attraction to the cross, this love of the cross, this love of redemption, this glorying in the bloodshedding of Jesus, because in His bloodshedding you have redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation to God. Are you perishing? I'm not asking this morning, have you been saved? Although that's a question that you need to ask yourself. I'm not asking, will you be saved? I'm asking, this is the proof of the pudding, I'm asking, are you being saved now, right at this moment? Do you love the cross? Do you love the work that God accomplished by His Son on the cross? Is the blood of Jesus, although it repels you, it attracts you because in His blood you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins? you go to the cross, continually driven to it by a sense of guilt and failure. You go to the cross, and you see the cross in a fresh way, in a new way, and you taste afresh the calm of sins forgiven. That's the test. That's the test. The test He applies. Are you perishing? Are you being saved? It all hinges on this attitude to the cross. Now, you might say, well, I, I don't think I've ever been saved. But you can be saved right at this moment. If you come to the cross as a sinner to Jesus and give up all hope of trying to make yourself acceptable to God and rest in His finished work, the cross, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, the danger He exposes. We mustn't allow ourselves to drift from the old, old story of Jesus and His love. The arguments He uses and the test that He applies, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It's the power of God.